<clears throat> Let's stand together <clears throat> for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Continuing forward in the book of Acts, chapter 17. We've seen gospel success at Thessalonica, and now we will see the response of evil in this section in verses 5 through 9. God bless the reading of His Word to our hearts and minds, and please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, <clears throat> and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. You'll notice the title of today's sermon is, As Always, to Fill Up the Measure of Their Sins. <clears throat> this comes from Paul's comments regarding these episodes when he writes back to the church in 1 Thessalonians. We read it in chapter 2. As always, to fill up the measure of their sins. We see uh, detailed examples of that today in the text. As we go through the text, we'll see the unbelieving and envious Jews lashing out. And then we'll see multiple steps in the method of darkness and wonder to yourself if you see these methods repeated throughout history, repeated in today's world as well. But also, brothers and sisters, uh, don't quickly cast yourself uh, so fast and maybe pridefully as the good guys in the story. Also examining yourself for these same kinds of fleshly, envious measures, uh, manipulating others in your own life. But we'll see how they gather evil, simple men going after the vulnerable, creating a mob and causing an uproar, uh, an uproar, a tumultuous riot, 
We'll see how they then use that mob to attack and threaten the faithful, and then they violently arrest them and weaponize the magistrates. It should sound familiar. We've seen this before. That's why Paul says, as always. And we see specifically they make false criminal accusations against them, even going so far as to make the proclamation of the gospel criminal. The full proclamation of the gospel is laid out as criminal by these envious Jews. We see their goal to create confusion in the minds of the people and the leaders, this troubling and frightening of everyone that gets what they want, which is to impoverish and threaten the church and chill the ongoing preaching and hearing and believing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as usual, some thoughts and questions at the end to know and love God more ourselves here today. So when Paul wrote back to the church at Thessalonica shortly after being there, because we'll see that when he's in Athens, he writes back to them, he's so concerned. Uh, maybe, anyways, one of the churches afterwards, shortly afterwards there, while he's still in that region, he writes back because he's concerned about them. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the other uttermost. So he praises God for their reception, for the way he worked in them to believe the gospel, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. And he tells them, what you're experiencing is the same thing that we've all experienced. It's the same thing that Jesus experienced. And these Jews are filling up the measure of their sin, and they will find themselves experiencing the wrath, and it will come upon them to the uttermost. And this is clearly in reference to the predictions that Jesus made and that we see also throughout the New Testament of the destruction of the temple and the utter undoing of the Jewish nation and Judaism. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is kind and his gospel is life. And his true messengers, they are beautiful and comforting for those who have eyes to see. These horrible accusations made against the people of God are the farthest thing from the truth about the church and the people of God, but indeed are true about those who are making the accusations, which is often the method of darkness. I love this example. Uh, I got it from a sermon. Uh, and I want you to listen to this and, and let this be an example to you, a metaphor for the beauty of the gospel. This gentleman, Paul Stanley, was in Vietnam. <clears throat> I saw Viet Cong soldiers surrender many times. As they were placed in custody, marched away, and briefly interrogated, their body language and facial expressions always caught my attention. Most hung their heads in shame, staring at the wound, unwilling to look their captors in the eye. But some stood erect, staring defiantly at those around them, resisting any attempt by our men to control them. <clears throat> they had surrendered physically, but not mentally. On one occasion, after the enemy had withdrawn, 
I came upon several soldiers surrounding a wounded Viet Cong soldier. Shot through his lower leg, he was hostile and he was frightened, but he was helpless. He threw mud and kicked with his one good leg when anyone would come near to him. When I joined the circle around the wounded enemy, one soldier asked me, Sir, what do we do? He's losing blood fast and he needs medical attention. I looked down at the struggling Viet Cong and saw the face of a 16 or 17 year old boy. I unbuckled my pistol belt and hand grenades so he could not grab them. And then, speaking gently, I moved toward him. He stared fearfully at me as I knelt down, but he allowed me to slide my arms under him and to pick him up. See, this is, this is who we are as gospel messengers. As I walked with him toward a waiting helicopter, he began to cry and to hold me tight. He kept looking at me and squeezing me tighter. He climbed into the helicopter and took off. We climbed into the helicopter and took off. During the ride, our young captive sat on the floor, clinging to my leg. Never having ridden in a helicopter, he looked out with panic as we gained altitude and flew over the trees. He fixed his eyes back on me, and I smiled reassuringly and put my hand on his shoulder. After landing, I picked him up and walked toward the medical tent. As we crossed the field, I felt the tenseness leave his body and his tight grasp loosen. His eyes softened and his head leaned against my chest. The fear and resistance were gone. He had finally surrendered. So as we go through these methods of darkness that we see laid before us today in the scripture and the false accusations against the church, I think it is good for us to have this kind of example to remember the reality of who we are as God's ambassadors. We bring forth the message of life and the message of hope and the faith that God grants to the souls who trust in Christ overflows unto love and service and is the most stabilizing influence in society and in human relationships. Oh yes indeed, it turns the world upside down, but not in the way that these deceivers accuse. The Lord's enemies, those who hate and destroy, they go on in their path of sin as we'll see today, falsely accusing God and His people, God and His people, of the same hate and destruction enslaving the souls of the false accusers. The same thing enslaving their Lord, Satan himself. <clears throat> you'll see again the map, and you'll note the uh, direction of travel from Thessalonica to Berea that will occur at the end of today's events, and that we'll look at that next week. And you'll see the travel uh, down to Athens and then on to Corinth before they begin heading home via Asia Minor. So, as always, unbelieving and envious Jews lash out in response. The text says, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious. So we see what is going on in their hearts. So you see, some of the Jews of the synagogue had believed the gospel and had trusted in Christ as the foretold Messiah. 
who had to suffer and who had to die for the sins of his people and who had to be resurrected from the dead. They had come to believe in the Messiah. The truth about the Messiah. And they had confessed their sins to God, repented of their sins, and placed all of their trust in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the foretold Messiah, as their only and complete hope of salvation. But most of the Jews were not persuaded, did not submit to the multiple definitive biblical proofs given to them by Paul from the scriptures about the Messiah. Nor did they submit to the multiple eyewitness testimonies regarding Jesus of Nazareth being that Messiah, dead in the tomb, raised up from the dead, whose body was touched and felt, and with whom they ate after his his resurrection, thus proving themselves to be irrational and bound by their sinful desires and goals, making them unable to see or believe the truth. And thus, even more, they are already advanced along the reprobate road, bringing more wrath upon themselves as they go down this path. The text says they were not persuaded, and it does certainly bring into mind the intellectual process of coming to faith and looking at the facts and believing what is laid before you. When we look at this word, it is kind of in the category of self-deception. They don't allow themselves to be persuaded. They refuse or withhold belief, even though they've been shown intellectually that they've lost the argument. They refuse belief and obedience. They will not comply. The King James says to believe not, to be disobedient, to obey not, to be unbelieving. So this is a willful refusal of that that your mind has been shown is true. And, you know, in that category, it often goes on to use violence and threats to shut down the conversation instead of allowing for continued public discourse upon the facts. So this is self-deception. They are hardening their own hearts. And this points to underlying sinful pre-commitments that they have that they're unwilling to release. They're stubbornly grasping onto, even unto self-destruction. This soul soil in view here, trampled down hard by sin, selfishness, and pride, leaves no room for the Word of God. And the devil quickly comes and snatches it away. They become envious. Why are they envious? What do they see in the church that they want for themselves? Because the gospel is indeed threatening their personal agenda. They want some things for themselves that they are losing. And this is the source of their envy. This word means to burn with zeal, to be heated or to boil with envy, hatred, anger, to envy. Imagine a wounded, cornered animal, unwilling to be domesticated, committed fully to lashing out. Why are they like this? What are they afraid of? It is fear that motivates them at its core that leads to this envy. They're losing the things in which they place their security and their hope. They've lost many Gentiles whom they hope to also make into twice the son of hell as themselves. That's how Jesus described it in Matthew 23, 15. Their church is shrinking. They'd lost Jews from their number. So their apostate church is shrinking in number, in wealth, and in influence. There is a subsequent, they see it, loss of cultural influence, power, and wealth for them and for their children. This threatens the very course of their existence and the reception of these things from past generations that they enjoyed is now threatened because they will not have these things to pass on. 
There are probably other things, other sources of envy that they experienced. So they see all of their evil desires being swept away into the hands of God's church. They're violating the Tenth Commandment thoroughly, fully, and expressing their sin. They're coveting these things for themselves, and like injured, cornered wild animals, they lash out. Commentary says the Jews were in all places the most inveterate enemy to the Christians, especially to those Jews that turned Christians, against whom they had a particular spleen as deserters. Now see what that division was which Christ came to send upon the earth. Some of the Jews believed the gospel and pitied and prayed for those that did not, while those that did not envied and hated those that did. St. Paul in his epistle to this church takes notice of the rage and enmity of the Jews against the preachers of the gospel as their measure filling sin. So this is a point of self-examination. These terrible Jews, right? Well, wait a minute. Are you, are we, like these envious Jews at all? When other churches flourish and grow quickly, what is your heart's response? The Christian response, the heart and mind of Christ, is to see it and observe it with great joy and gladness. And to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Next we see them moving into their first method of darkness. Their envy comes forth and the foul fruit we see. And I hope that you will take some time to look through the Communist Manifesto. And see these same tools put to use by those revolutionaries who would destroy society and make Christianity illegal. Uh, and it's not just uh, in communism, but it's in many other similar systems of revolution and cultural turmoil leading unto bloodshed and death that we have seen in the past. So they took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Let's talk about these ideas. So where did they go first? They could have gone anywhere in society. They could have gone anywhere they wanted to go. But they went to the most vulnerable They're driven on by their self-deception and their selfish goals. They need a tool they can use to beat the people of God. Since the rod of the Romans had been removed as an option, they have to come up with their own tools to threaten the church. They go to what the Greek word means as lewd and uneducated men, as we'll see these two things. Marketplace gets to those uh, common, uh, vulgar is the word, uneducated, simple-minded people. They go to lewd and uneducated men whose simple minds leave them quite vulnerable to lies and bribes and all forms of manipulation. This idea of evil men, they're full of labors and annoyances and hardships. They're bad, of a bad nature or condition. And in an ethical sense, it means evil, wicked, and bad. So these are not just simple men. These are simple men who've gone on to be evil men. And this word marketplace, it, it, it can mean the place of uh, exchange of goods. Uh, but uh, looking at it more closely, the word is also used as idlers, loungers, the common sort, low, mean, and vulgar. And the King James translates it that way, of a baser sort. So these are folks who are vulnerable, easy to manipulate, their minds are untrained, and they're given over to evil ways. And it is extremely useful to the forces of darkness to create a populace like this. And obviously this brings up the question, what kind of person are you? Is your mind vulnerable to these things? Parents, as we raise up our children, do we understand the 
schemes of the devil. And we want our children and grandchildren, those whom we love, and ourselves to be vigilant and aware of these schemes and not give way. Commentary says, who are the instruments of the trouble? The Jews made use of certain lewd persons of the baser sort whom they picked up and got together and who must undertake to give the sense of the city against the apostles. Who must undertake to give the sense of the city against the, the apostles. All wise and sober people looked upon them with respect and valued them, and none would appear against them but such as were the scum of the city, a company of vile men that were given to all manner of wickedness. Are you, are we vulnerable like these men? Do we see the dangers of our own sin if we are not being sanctified and how we can be in this same place of vulnerability? That sinfulness does not, undealt with sinfulness does not leave our minds alone. It makes us vulnerable, lacking discernment. It takes us on to mental laziness. So are we vigilant? Do we understand these things about ourselves? And look out for this kind of drifting that is a part of who we are, possibility, a potential in our lives, in your life, in my life, until glory. Next, do you see similar methods being enacted today? Is there a populace that is vulnerable, simple-minded, and given over to evil ways that can easily be deceived and put to use for this kind of evil work? making it appear as though those of God's church are the problem. Is there such a thing in today's world? How did it come into existence? What is the means by which this has occurred in our society? There's a precursor to these things. You must do things or not do things in a society in order for such a populace to come into existence. Would you see government-funded education in this category of creating such a populace? Would you see what happened in the summer of 2020 as being in this category? These types of riots and tumultuous events. Do you see the similarity? I do. Or the places where widespread looting and theft and violence are allowed to persist without any lawful intervention. Do you see these things in today's world? The devil's schemes are predictable if we will learn from scriptures and have eyes to see. Next, there's a next step in the methods of darkness is to gather a mob and cause an uproar. So first you have to target the right people who are vulnerable and you get them together. You light a little fire. Off it goes. Gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar is what we're told. Setting their little fire amongst the lewd and simple, they go on to fan the flame amongst the general public, creating a frenzy and stirring up riots. Often this kind of thing can be this evil threat that comes forth from these lewd and evil and simple men when they come together. And the natural human inclination apart from Christ is retaliation, revenge. So then violence is stirred up and bloodshed occurs. And that creates even more opportunity to accuse the church of being such a, a great unstabilizing force in the earth. This word mob that's used here comes from a word that means to raise a public disturbance. So the goal here, uh, as this is progressing, and this is a method and it's a goal, is to make a noise or an uproar, to cause turbulence and confusion 
and tumultuous unsteadiness to shake the nation, to shake the city. Their envy essentially knows no end. They're willing to use any tools necessary. So these reprobate Jews, overthrown by their own envy, are turning this town upside down intentionally by design. They're the ones who've turned this town upside down. They're the ones who turned Philippi upside down. They're the ones who turned Jerusalem upside down. They're the ones who have turned the world upside down. Jesus is taking things and making it right side up again. That's what Jesus is doing. Commentary says they set the city in an uproar. They made a noise to put people in a fright. And then everybody ran to see what the matter was. They began a riot. And then the mob was up presently. See who are the troublers of Israel. Not the faithful preachers of the gospel, but the enemies of the gospel. See how the devil carries on his designs. He sets cities in an uproar. Sets souls in an uproar. And then fishes there in those troubled waters. And, and as we will see, blames all of that, attempts to blame all of that on the church, on the gospel, on Christ, on God. Essentially calling God the devil. How are you, how are we prone to stir up public trouble like this because of our own sin? Wanting to use the arm of the flesh to get what we want if we are threatened with loss. I hope that we will do business with this. I think it is so natural for us to justify such behavior if we think we have godly goals in mind. May God deliver us from this and see that our fleshly means point to envy and wrong motives as we claim to be doing God's will. May He deliver us from this, brothers and sisters. Because when we act this way, we're acting like these lost Jews who were filling up the measure of their sin under God's wrath. Now, again, other application. Outwardly, do you see similar schemes underway today with examples in recent history? With cities in an uproar, with gathered mobs in place. These are the methods of darkness. And sadly, so many undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate courses and curriculums will praise this form of diabolical revolution. It is not to be praised. It is to be rejected. And the evil deeds of darkness exposed by God's grace. Further methods of darkness. Then they turn up the heat and target this grand tool and attack and threaten the faithful. It's not just to destabilize the community. It's then to bring that destabilization blame upon the church. And to leave these individuals feeling threatened by this frenzied mob. And to leave the political rulers, as we will see, feeling also fear as a result of what's happening. It says, they attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So similar to their prior evil evil efforts, that's the phrase, as always, the Jews then use this stirred up, confused mob vectoring the uproar onto God's faithful servants, bringing violence and then subsequent to that threats upon God's church. 
So the devil will use, through these types of people, all forms of power and manipulation available to make God's people afraid. Whether it's physical threats, reputational threats, rejection from your work, whether it's jailing, whether it's fines, or perhaps even physical threats, even unto death. The devil will put all of these things to use. And, and, and very subtle forms of deception as well. A subtlety none of us can match. Walking around thinking we believe the truth when we do not. <clears throat> this is a, an important point for us to see as we consider the path of safety, the path of deliverance from this fear. So they're like a wild hive of angry bees at this point. <clears throat> they assault Jason's house, crashing their waves of tumult <clears throat> upon this man. He's a good man. What is he doing? He's connecting himself to God's church. He's showing hospitality. So when you think of hospitality, you don't think that just, oh, by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean there might not be some threats associated with it. And they don't just go to his home and <clears throat> throw eggs and tomatoes at his house and graffiti his mailbox. They drag him out of his home. They go into his house and bring him out of his house. Now, who would not be threatened by such a mob? You want to be in their midst, exposed to their wrath? In future days and weeks, how would this impact Jason's hospitality? In future days and weeks, how would this impact the ongoing life of the church in this town? Thessalonica stands as perhaps the pinnacle example of all these churches in terms of the horrid nature of their persecution against the church. And that's why we see in First and Second Thessalonians such frequent reference to God's wrath upon the Jews and the coming judgment upon them, which has eschatological significance to understand these things. Because much of what is said in First and Second Thessalonians is not about the future, anything future to us, but was then about what would be future to the people of Thessalonica. And it was written for their comfort, for them to know that Jesus had not abandoned them, and that these Jews were filling up the measure of sin, and God was going to judge them. And it would be a redemptive judgment, delivering his people from their hand. Commentary says, they assaulted the house of Jason, where the apostles lodged with a, with a design to bring them out to the people, whom they had incensed and enraged against them, and by whom they hoped to see them pulled to pieces. And I'll stop and pause here and just comment. It appears as though it's likely in the background they were aware they weren't going to have access to the Roman rod. These, Paul is a Roman citizen. So it's likely they were hoping, literally, that this mob would just tear them to bits. The proceedings here were altogether illegal. Of, of Jason's house must be searched. It ought to be done by the proper officers and not without a warrant. A man's house, the law says, is his castle. And for them, in a tumultuous manner, to assault a man's house, to put him and his family in fear was but to show to what outrages men are carried by a spirit of persecution. If men have offended, magistrates are appointed to inquire into the offense and to judge of it properly. But to make the rabble judges, to make the rabble executioners, as these Jews designed to do, was to make truth fall on the street, to set servants on horseback and leave princes to walk as servants on the earth, to depose equity and to enthrone fury. That's a great way of describing the devil's kingdom on earth. To depose equity and to enthrone fury and madness. Do we see this in today's world? When you look around and you hear what is happening, 
Do you see this in today's world? Do you think it's a coincidence? Or do you think we see the diabolical schemes of the devil playing out before our eyes again today? And so often, in addition, the human heart, our own sin, will walk this path as well without much help from the devil. But in either case, this is the way of darkness. Next, we see continued escalation of the threats by bringing the sword of the civil magistrate into play. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. So we see continued violence in the midst of their frustration. They wanted Paul and Silas. They wanted Paul and Silas's team. That's who they wanted. Couldn't get them. Their anger probably goes up. They lay hands on Jason and some of the brethren who are there, and they take them to the civil magistrate with their uh, mob mentality on display and their uh, uh, threats of violence pressing the magistrate. So they're frustrated not to find their precise targets. They, these mayhem Jews lay hands on the closest representative, Jason, a man of hospitality, and also onto some of the other new converts. Perhaps the Jews had hoped the crowd would explode into, a violent, into violence and kill Paul and his team since their hopes of physical abuse, as I've already said, were likely dampened by what had occurred in Philippi. We see God's providence there. So I want us to note that the methods of darkness have only one currency. When we get to the final point of application in today's sermon, and I read to you and cry out to God together that we would hear Psalm 46 with new ears and a new heart, I hope that you will see that the key here is being brought into God's love, which is the only deliverance from fear. If we are not in God's love, if we are not abiding in His presence moment by moment, surrounded as by His presence and love and power, as by an unassailable refuge, a strong tower, if that is not our daily moment by moment experience, then we are in fear. There is a one-to-one correlation between those two things. To the extent that we are not in love, we are in fear. To the extent that we are in fear, we are vulnerable to these pressures. We can be steered by persecution. And in that area, our boldness is lost. Our courage is gone. Fear. So the fear of those overthrown by sin motivates them because that's what controls them. They want to create fear in others. And they want to motivate them to do what they want. So they use fear to motivate these vulnerable unto violence. And then their hope is the same fear will control God and his servants. They want fear in the people. They want fear in the simple, fear in the evil. They want riots. They want fear in the rulers. And they use that fear to leverage and offer a solution to control people. This is the way it works. Next, not content to threaten with just wild crowds, the Jews seek to misuse the sword of justice again. This sort of justice that God gives to civil magistrates, the power of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, the power of God is a good thing. Rightly used for rest, for social peace. That's the fruit when we see Christian civil magistrates and Christian nations abiding in God's law. And the devil instead uses this good tool to threaten good and to stir up tumults. Commentary says, when they could not get the apostles into their hands, whom they would have punished as vagabonds, and incensed the people against as strangers that came to spy out the land and devour its strength and eat the bread of their mouths, 
Then they fall upon an honest citizen of their own who entertained the apostles in his house. His name Jason, the converted Jew, and drew him out with some others of the brethren to the rulers of the city. So this is the path that is taken. What are the further methods of darkness? False criminal accusations. The text says they were crying out to the civil magistrate, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. We see at least two false accusations here. The first false accusation is that the evil Jews accused the church of stirring up this great tumult. So whatever threats are created by the devil's schemes, the, the idea there is to then transfer the responsibility for that threat onto God's people. That's the scheme. And it's very effective because then immediately you're on the defensive and you're trying to point things out and then the other person just says, oh, well, come on, that's not fair for you to talk about me that way. Look at you. You're so defensive. So the devil does devilish things, creating hellish outcomes and then blaming it on God and his people. Perhaps the quintessential mark of hell on earth. Think about it. This might be the quintessential mark of hell on earth is this technique. Doing evil, acting innocent, accusing others of the very same evil you are currently doing. Putting God's people on the defensive and then acting offended and mistreated when the church responds in truth. Look at you, you're so paranoid. You and your conspiracy theories. What is wrong with you? How could you believe something like that? Just trying to help. The devil comes as an angel of light. Disguised as an angel of light, right? False accusation number two. That hospitality towards God's people is equivalent to harboring criminals. You see this? And so this method of darkness seeks to divide God's people from one another by creating fear of association. And ultimately you could see how this would tempt God's people to not come together and worship him on his day. And that's what happens throughout history. We see the covenanters coming together nonetheless and meeting in places of hiding when they were threatened in their associations with one another. But what is the truth regarding these two things? God's church, preaching and living the gospel, brings social peace as souls submit to Christ, the Prince of Peace. Now it is true that there is a reordering that takes place when a culture transitions out of a fear-based economy into a love-based way of relating to one another. Fortunes are lost. Power is transferred. New ways of living occur. There is a reshaping, a remaking that takes place. So in that sense, God turns the world upside down, but He does it because it was already upside down. And he's making it right. Next, God's church via hospitality brings healing. This is the truth. Brings healing and comfort to neighborhoods, and to communities, and to one another. We're not harboring criminals when we carry out hospitality. That's the farthest thing from the truth. We're not harming society. We're bringing peace and stability and a network of organic, divinely created stability in that community. Next, 
not only do they make these false accusations, but they go on to actually seek making the gospel criminal. Do, do you see similar efforts in today's world? The reading and the preaching of God's word, has it been made illegal anywhere? Has anyone been arrested for reading or preaching the gospel? I've read about it. So we see this same path today. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Is presenting the kingdom of God accurately a part of preaching the gospel and living the gospel? Yes, it is. So they take a gospel truth that Jesus Christ is the king of the rulers of the earth. That's Revelation 1, verse 5. He is the king of the rulers of the earth. He's not just another king. He's the king of the rulers of the earth. And these deceivers twist the truth, and then they go on to set up a false dichotomy, claiming that to believe in Christ is to necessarily reject Caesar, and they go on specifically to claim that the church has been directly disobeying Caesar. Now, while it is true that Caesar is judged by Christ and by his word, it is not necessarily true that loyalty to Christ requires disloyalty to earthly kings and their decrees. It doesn't necessarily require disloyalty even to pagan earthly kings and their decrees and their systems. It is not a necessity, and they set it up as such. Now, the timing is a little unclear, but there may have been a decree of Claudius making it against this decree to preach the gospel, to proclaim the full gospel. So it's, it's conceivable that it had been set up as a decree already. It was at one point, and it was likely before this. They may have been referencing that. Commentary says, His followers said, indeed, Jesus is a king, but not an earthly king. Not a rival with Caesar, nor his ordinances interfering with the decrees of Caesar, but who had made it a law of his kingdom to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There was nothing in the doctrine of Christ that tended to the dethroning of princes nor the depriving them of any of their prerogatives. The Jews knew this very well, and it was against their consciences that they brought such a charge against the apostles. Now think about this. And of all people, it ill became the Jews to do it, who hated Caesar and his government and sought the ruin of him and it and who expected a Messiah that should be a temporal prince and overturn the thrones of kingdoms and were therefore opposing our Lord Jesus because he did not appear under that character. So the very thing that they hoped that the Messiah would actually do, they were accusing the people of God of doing. Don't be surprised by hypocrisy coming out of the mouths of those who are deceived. And we need to watch for it coming out of our own mouths. So by their lies, they twist the practical meaning of Christ's lordship and thereby, thereby attempt to make gospel proclamation illegal. Do you see any similar efforts afoot today? So part of the big picture of today's sermon is don't be surprised when you look around and you see these things taking place. Don't be surprised when you look around and you see the educational institutions of our world seeking to glorify these paths of hell. Don't be surprised by that. And don't think it's by accident. Don't think it's some recently discovered thing. There's nothing new under the sun. These are the schemes of the devil and the 
inclinations of the human heart, controlled by fear, since the fall. So there's a goal here, and it's ultimately what they were after. They troubled the crowd of, and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So we, this is what they were after. This is what Hell's Kingdom is always after, is a shaking, a shaking, a destabilization, like you're always experiencing an ethical, political, social, cultural earthquake. They call themselves progressives while they destroy that which is good. Progressing to hell. So they want to trouble, the, hell wants to trouble and disturb both the people and the rulers by the tumult. See this in Psalm 46. The nations rage, the kingdoms are shaken. So this tumult is to cause an inward commotion, the people, the rulers, and to take away their calmness of mind to disturb their equanimity. They always want the shifting ground to be creating fear. That's why so often propaganda is so effective when it gives two different messages at the same time. That's not by accident. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. They're safe. They're not safe. They're effective. They're not effective. They cause heart problems. They don't cause heart problems. There's no accident here. This intentional destabilization of reality is a constant effort of the foundations of hell. And it serves further purposes to control the decision of the magistrate and impoverish and threaten the church further. So this fear is, is effective. It works. If you have fear, it will work against you. If there's fear in your marriage, it will work against your marriage. If there's fear in your family, it will work against your family. If there's fear in our church, it will work against us as well. May God deliver us from this. Amen. May we grow up in love and be freed more from fear. And you see, fear is so natural to us. Apart from Christ, it just feels so natural. It's just the way you're supposed to think and live. And so when people start to bring ideas that call us not to fear, we will, we'll have thoughts like, this person's crazy. Of course I'm supposed to be afraid. Of course I'm supposed to be worried. No. Very, very clear command. Do not fear. Jesus gives to us. Commentary says, they had no ill opinion of the apostles or their doctrine. They could not apprehend any danger to the state from them and therefore were willing to connive at them. But if they be represented to them by the prosecutors as enemies to Caesar, they will be obliged to take cognizance of them and to suppress them for fear of the government. And this troubled them that is troubled the rulers. Claudius who then held the reins of government is represented by Suetonius as a man very jealous of the least commotion and timorous to the last degree, which obliged the rulers under him to be watchful against everything that looked dangerous or gave the least cause of suspicion. And therefore it troubled them to be brought under a necessity of disturbing good men. So we see this plan unfolding. And what happens? They get their way. Not as much as they want, but they get their way. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This was probably a large sum of money or a great amount and or a great amount of important possessions. Maybe they lost business licenses. Maybe they lost their ability to truck in commerce. Maybe they were unable to participate in certain cultural events. Maybe they were evicted 
Maybe they found it hard to get food. We don't know. But it points also in this context to future dangers for these brethren because this security means they would have to appear again before the magistrates. And so it's a leash that they're trying to put onto the people of God to control them. Do you feel that leash around your neck in today's world? It is a leash frequently put to use to threaten us and make us forget that the Lord Jesus Christ and His bank account are where we are to fix our eyes and minds. His wealth, His promises as the owner and the master of all creation and the one who loves us with an everlasting love. So while the envious Jews would likely have preferred beatings and bloodshed, they must remain content for the time to lay a citywide chill upon the church in all of these ways. You know, now would be a good time, if you haven't done it lately, to read through First and Second Thessalonians. Maybe you might do that at home today uh, as a part of your uh, Sabbath, uh, growing up in your Sabbath experience. And look at it from this perspective. Because you're going to see over and over again repetitive phrases from Paul that point to these experiences here and others that they have in the future. But what you will note most is that there's still a church. There's a people who love God. And the Lord has protected them. And the church has grown. The church has been established in spite of all of these threats upon them. And even a tribulation mentioned. And this whole conversation he has with them about those who've fallen asleep in that context points to the possibility or even the likelihood that Christians had been killed in Thessalonica because of their faith in God. Over it all, we see God's protection, not only through the Roman citizenship aspect and not being beaten again, but just throughout the course of what we know about the life of the church at Thessalonica. And it should leave us encouraged to see that our God is our fortress and our strong refuge and dwelling in his love, finding his rest, shall be to his people moment by moment an unassailable fortress of peace and gladness. So a few questions. First of all, have you believed the gospel? What camp are you in? Are you amongst those, like those few Jews, who've come to believe in Jesus Christ as the foretold Messiah? Confessing your sins to God and finding the certainty that the Father of mercies has poured out His grace and forgiveness upon you because of Christ? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Even this day, do you continue to find the preaching of the promises of God and the reception of the assurance of pardon as life to your soul? Day in and day out. Are you that seed that has fallen on good soil, is being nourished and nurtured by His Word and by His Spirit through the continual reception of gospel promises unto growth into Christ-likeness and fruitfulness? Is this true of you? Do you want to be like that soldier who brings the gospel message and participates in helping those who once were your enemies find God as their friend? Is this you? 
And if it is you, if it is not, what must I say? If it is not true, then you continue to be exposed to the wrath of God and shall not find peace at the end of the brief vapor-like existence on this earth but shall then lose all hope of any future pleasures and know nothing but eternal torment and destruction in your soul. These are the truths. This is the uh, preaching of the gospel, the keys of the kingdom, whereby the gospel and those who believe in it is opened unto them unto eternal life. And those who reject it and do not believe it, this preaching of the gospel becomes unto you the key locking the door showing you that you may not have any hope of finding salvation apart from Christ. If you are an unbeliever, you will give way to envy. You will be controlled by this fear. You will take measures into your own hands. You will not know how to respond when you lose. You will not know how to respond to God's will. And you will take on fleshly means like an orphan in the street grabbing bread when the other orphan isn't looking. Now, if you are a believer, have you been transitioned so thoroughly into the kingdom of light that you are able to identify covetousness in your heart and the envy and the subsequent human means of manipulation and coercion using fear to keep from losing what you have or to get what you don't have. Please examine yourself and see if this is a part of your thinking and your actions. And it could come in in little ways. Uh, It can come in little ways, the ways that a a husband might speak to a wife or uh, that a mother might speak to her children or that siblings might speak to one another or that we may engage with each other even in God's church. Oh, brothers and sisters, May the Lord cast out all fear from our midst so that we would be freed from fleshly expressions, that he would open our eyes to see how we so freely and happily breathe in fear and take on its aroma and transfer it to others. Next, what is your response to evil? Another thing that Paul talks to the the folks of Thessalonica about the Thessalonians, is about never repaying evil for evil. One of the biggest tools of the devil is to provoke us to respond sinfully, to create anger and vengefulness inside of us. And so many of the heroes on the screen or in the books these days are these wondrous masters of vengeance who are the heroes. Instead of the heroes who leave room for God's vengeance and walk in faithfulness to Him and in love and compassion upon these poor souls who may be headed for eternal perdition and who cannot be provoked because they walk in love, not in fear. They cannot be provoked because God's will shall be done. They cannot be provoked because what this evil person is doing is simply according to God's will already and listen, though the earth give way, he shall be exalted. Every word of evil, every rod upon the back, every money stolen from your purse, he will be exalted. 
This frees us from being provoked, and it is the failure that we see amongst the zealots in the New Testament writing and how they rebelled against the Romans. Oh, may God, may God deliver us from fear that leads to all kinds of wrong responses, but especially, oh yeah, oh yeah, will you just wait? You think you got something on me? Yeah, will you just wait? It is human. It is human for us to feel that way, especially when the precious things of our lives are threatened by those who hate God. Think about these children in Jason's home and what they endured. What if someone did that in your home and your little children were waking up with nightmares afterwards? So easy to be provoked. May we not be provoked. May we not. From now on, when we read these words in our liturgy, love is not provoked, think of this. Think of this. It's not just abstract. It's when we're being mistreated. It's when we're being persecuted. Love is not provoked. <clears throat> so what is the path <clears throat> to peace in persecution? I've been enjoying Psalm 46 lately. <clears throat> and I'm going to read it to us uh, as the, the closing um, application for our sermon today. If you'd like to join me, it's on page 876 there in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> We can talk later about how I believe there is very likely a, a beautiful chiastic structure here in Psalm 46, and the central point that the psalmist is calling us to rest in, because this is about finding God's rest, finding courage no matter what, and being made glad no matter what, and rejoicing in God's exaltation no matter what, <clears throat> and practically the way that ha- happens is in verse 6, the phrase, he uttered his voice. This is our greatest need. This is how God accomplishes this practically, is he sends forth. That's that word uttered, means to send forth. He sends forth his voice into our hearts and minds by his word and by his spirit. And he shows us that we are safe. And he grants us peace and security in the midst of the storm. Psalm 46. Psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So God is with us. He is with us, His people. And His presence, and nothing else, is our refuge. And He'll say this multiple times, and you'll discern the chiastic structure. Next. Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Therefore, since God is our refuge, His presence is our refuge. And we are safe in Him. Nothing can break in and bring fear into our lives. The greatest catastrophe you could ever imagine, the greatest tragedy you could ever imagine going through does not have the ability to overcome the power of God's presence as a refuge in your life. Because His presence is life. His presence is love. His presence is power. His presence helps you see that no matter what happens, it is all for His glory and for your good. Next, there's more. 
There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God brings gladness to us. Not just peace and security and courage, but in the midst of the whole world coming apart, He gives us gladness. Again, because He is with us. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High, He dwells in us. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. No matter what comes our way, no matter what loss you may face, you shall not be moved. And even in the midst of it, there shall be gladness and peace and courage and joy in the midst of any storm that breaks upon you. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. This ends the first part top part of the chiasm. And it comes to this point. He uttered his voice. And now the chiastic structure begins to move back. The earth melted. Oh, the nations will rage and the kingdoms will be shaken. But when the Lord utters his voice, the earth melts. He brings forth his power and his unshakable kingdom is made immovable in the midst of any of the ragings of the devil in his kingdom. Next. Again. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. This would be a good phrase to memorize and hum to yourself all throughout the course of the day. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I'm sure you could come up with a better melody than that. Hum it. Memorize it. Make it your heartbeat. He is with you. You're never alone. And He's not just with you in an abstract sense. His very presence of love and power and affection and the living presence of the Spirit bringing gladness to your soul in the midst of all of these things. Looking at more of the works of the Lord besides just bringing gladness into our soul. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot In the fire, even if he determines to dissolve the earth into nothing, he can bring it back together again. Not only does he pour out his spirit in our hearts and bring gladness to us in the midst of all these things inwardly, but outwardly we look out and we say he is the controller of all the events of mankind. And all of these folks raging against him are just servants on his leash, doing his eternal decrees. Next, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This fearlessness that we've already seen, this therefore we will not fear in verse 2, is opened up for us here where we are still and tranquil before God even as the earth dissolves around us, even as the nations rage, even as every form of threat and persecution come against us because we know in the midst of every bit of it, without exception, He will be exalted. He will be exalted. Notice the future language. This living in His presence now gives us this unassailably optimistic view of the future because no matter what the devil does, the greatest thing, the greatest desire that we have will be fulfilled. That God will be exalted. That God will be glorified. Is your life about avoiding pain? Is your life about bringing forth some sort of outcome in your life 
And if these things are taken away, your bank account is wiped out, your health is taken away, you, you go through the Job experience, and you're building your whole existence around that, well, guess what? You will not be able to go through the things that may come and remain joyful. Unless your heart's chief desire is that God would be exalted in all things. And he will be. So you can therefore enjoy him and be that crazy smiling individual before a dead sea that won't part and charging chariots on the other side. Well, it looks like we're all about to get killed. Praise be to God. He will be exalted. It sounds crazy. And it certainly is never an excuse for not taking godly actions. But do you see how this creates this holy detachment for us? Where our lives are not about outcomes. Even godly outcomes. Because it is His will that we desire. Oh, if there's any unholy connections in your life between you and your spouse, or you and your children, or you and this church, or you and this world, may God sever them through this understanding for all of us. The Lord of hosts is with us, it ends. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, oh, how we praise You and thank You, Lord, for Your love and Your favor over us in Christ. And that as Jesus Christ sits enthroned at Your right hand, O Father, in the perfections of Mount Zion, free from any threats, so do we sit and we rejoice. Bless us, we pray, O God, to go forth in this knowledge, in this certainty, and these great truths of Your Word, these great truths from Psalm 46 would, would buttress our souls at all times, and that You would grant unto us, O God, as Your people, to hear, to have the faith to hear and receive the going forth of Your Word, of Your voice in our hearts and minds day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment dwelling in the perfections of Your presence and Your love, practicing the presence of God, and walking about as those who dwell in the shelter of Mount Zion, which cannot be assailed. Bless us to walk in love and be freed from, free, from fear that we may be no prey to these evil schemes of hell, but shall be those who walk in humility and boldness loving You, being filled with Your love and freed from fear and brought into all the power and the beauty of, and glory of such a faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.